0: The theory of delegation of powers is my, I regard it as my important contribution because it gave a framework for many other institutional and legal situations. So the theory of why politicians are interested to delegate powers, uh, which is counterintuitive in a sense. Uh, which emerged from my dissertation, which I wrote about the independence of the judiciary from a law and economics perspective. I think this is my major contribution to the theory.
1: Hi there, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast, What are you going to do with that? of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, a PhD candidate, and as your host, I usually speak with early career researchers about their academic journey in the hope to gain tips and insights into how to go about my own. This time, however, our guest is more of a late career researcher, because today I'm chatting with Professor Ellie Salzberger, who is the head of the Minerva Center. And as such, I believe we can learn a lot from him. Before properly introducing you to Professor Salzberger, I'd like to invite everyone to check out our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to find more information about upcoming guests, and also our YouTube channel and blog for tips from and for peers. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe! Now back to Ellie. Professor Eli Salzberger gained his LLB at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem as first in class after which he clerked for Chief Justices Aharon Barak and Dorit Benesh. Eli wrote his doctorate at Oxford University on the economic analysis of the doctrine of separation of powers. And his research and teaching areas are legal theory and philosophy, economic analysis of law, legal ethics, cyberspace, and the Israeli Supreme Court, on which he has published more than 40 articles and also a few books. Professor Salzberger was a member of the board of directors of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel and of the Public Council of the Israeli Democracy Institute and of a State Commission for Reform and Performance Rights in Israel. He was also the Dean of the Faculty of Law at our University of Haifa and the President of the European Association for Law and Economics. And I got to know Ellie as the Director of the Haifa Center for German and European Studies, where I'm doing my doctoral studies. Ellie has been awarded various grants and fellowships, among them Rothschild, Minerva and Fulbright. He was a visiting professor at universities including Princeton, University of Hamburg, Humboldt University, University of Torino, Miami Law School, University of St. Gallen and UCLA. Ellie is currently the director of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions and co-director of the International Academy for Judges at the University of Haifa Faculty of Law. If you're interested in listening to some of his lectures, you can find recordings on the Minerva Center's YouTube channel. And I think it's safe to say that if there are any ECRs out there listening to this who would like to pursue a career in academia, that Ellie would be a role model. And I hope he's willing to be as open about his struggles as about his successes during his academic journey. So, welcome, Ellie. How are you doing?
0: Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure to be with you here today um how we are doing you know it's a it's been a tough year for everyone um not even uh, some had it much worse than others but uh, i hope that uh, we are heading towards better years to come maybe we will talk about the tough year because it's not only health wise it's also Democracy-wise, which is maybe more important.
1: Oh, that's right. Maybe we'll get into the democracy and the the elections coming up here in Israel too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's also part of your uh, research and the things that you've been looking into as being part of the Israeli Democracy Institute and focusing on the Supreme Court in Israel.
0: Right. And even, you know, the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Condition, when it was established about nine years ago, we didn't envisage such extreme conditions that challenge the rule of law very seriously all over the world. So it's an interesting time.
1: Right. So I'm glad that you're joining us and that we're doing this podcast. Before I'm going to ask you a few short questions, I'm going to pour myself my signature drink, Amaretto. What are you having today?
0: Oh, what I have... I have two drinks in front of me. (laughs) One (laughs) is a local wine. You know that uh, I live in Zichron Yaakov, which is 30 kilometers south of Haifa. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's the Israeli Provence area. Very nice slopes, the beginning of the Carmel Mountain and the slopes going to the sea. And there are many vineyards, including the original uh, or the oldest vineyard in Israel, Carmel Mizrahi, which was established by the Rothschild in the 19th century. But I have here a a nice uh, white wine of a small winery in Zichon called Somek. And it's a very, very uh, delicious and fruity wine. And I invite everybody to come and taste it.
1: I definitely should, as soon as it's possible again, to travel a little bit. That would be nice. I heard about the wineries around uh, Zichon, but I haven't tried it yet. So, cheers. That's exciting. Cheers. (laughs) Okay, so if you have your drink and I've got mine, I think I'm ready to get started. How about you? Ready. Okay, my first short question is, what does your morning routine look like?
0: Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> it's
1: supposed to be an easy one. <laughs> no,
0: because I'm not a role model in this in this regard. Uh, I'm a late waker. I uh, like to work at night time until a very late hour, and therefore I take the liberty to wake up whenever I'm. Uh, <laughs> I wake up so it's usually around uh, nine or so and after a short coffee and breakfast uh, I start working.
1: Okay that sounds good though and I'm glad you're saying that because most of my guests have been really early birds. um, People waking up even at five in the morning and I'm not like that at all either (laughs) so I'm happy to hear there's people like me out there uh, who work better in the evening than in the morning. So, you're definitely not the only one. Okay, next question. What meal do you cook best?
0: What meal do I cook best? Um, probably breakfast or brunch. Do you cook? Uh, um, not seriously. I can do okay. very nice omelettes, salads, but not uh, very serious cooking.
1: Well, Brunch is one of my favorite meals of the day, so that works. (laughs) Okay, and then you visited quite a few universities um, in your academic career, but which campus do you think was the most beautiful one?
0: Wow, it's, there is a tough competition on the most beautiful campus, yeah. and I will I will leave high five side. And um, I think that um, you know, St. Gallen in Switzerland is a beautiful campus because you see from it uh, the mountains, the Alps, and you see the Lake of Constance. Um, UCLA is a very nice campus uh, in the middle of the town with a lot of green. Uh, areas, and beautiful architecture. And Bucerius Law School is a beautiful campus in Hamburg. So it's really... Miami Law School uh, has a beautiful campus. And one of the reasons to choose a university to be a visiting professor is the beauty of its campus. So I've been to many beautiful campuses and it's a tough competition. (laughs)
1: That's nice. Hopefully, I'll get to see a few more.
0: A funny story from my uh, doctoral period. Um, well, Oxford is a beautiful campus as well. <laughs> I forgot uh, to mention it, but we had a very nice uh, Indian colleague in Oxford uh, who was doing a PhD together in my cohort. Uh, Indifferent, he was an historian. And he was uh, about to go and get a job in a new university in india in goa which was built on the beach and apparently every professor had a a little porch to the beach from his or her room Uh, i have not been to this campus but it sounds very very beautiful but then comes the punchline that he told us that when they, uh, the architect uh, constructed the plans for the, this beautiful campus, he forgot one thing, and this is a library. Oh. <laughs>
1: okay. Hmm. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll get to that at some point. <laughs> okay. Um, you obviously had quite a successful career within academia, but did you ever have a plan B of another optional career in your mind?
0: Uh, not really. Um, and my career, uh, in a sense, I went to study law by mistake. You know, it was not a dream of my childhood to to study law. Um, I discovered law from an elective that I did during my army service, when I uh, studied for a general degree in social sciences. Uh, But when I started law, uh, very soon I realized that I don't want to be a practitioner, but to stay in the academic field. And um, I didn't have a plan B. Uh, Different times, you know, uh, our generation didn't plan ahead and had contingencies and uh, strategies you know we just uh, allowed uh, the waves to carry us and uh, the waves carried me to to be an academic
1: different mentality maybe different times yeah we'll get to that
0: Change of generation is a very, very interesting phenomena, And uh, one of the things that I, you know, in my scholarship dealt with innovation technology, the pace of change is accelerating. And therefore, the gaps between uh, generation increases. And my son's generation and your generation are already on a very different path. Uh, um, kind of territories or worlds. So I'm a very, from a very, very ancient world.
1: (laughs) I'm sure that's not entirely true, but we'll talk a little bit about the differences between when you did a PhD and, um, my generation now doing the PhD. Um, but I have one more short question before we get started. And that is what is your favorite hobby and are you still able to do that despite the pandemic?
0: Oh, I have an actual hobby, which is swimming. I used to swim quite a lot before the pandemic. Uh, and this uh, is not possible now. The swimming pools are closed and it's too cold to swim in the sea. Uh, so in the past year, I've not been enough exercise. Um, and swimming is not only an exercise, but I really like it. And my other hobby is acting. Okay. I went for one year to an acting school while I was studying law. And on my last big birthday, I even got a present from my friends to go for an acting workshop for a year. Okay. But it didn't materialize because of the corona. And to do acting on Zoom is not probably um, the wise thing. So i wait and um, maybe we, you'll interview me in a few years as a, <laughs> as a Grammy laureate.
1: <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> this is something to look forward to for when the pandemic uh, ends. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I'm excited to now dig into your academic journey and and career a bit more. And as usually I start from the beginning, which you've already hinted at, um, I assume that you were, I was under the impression that you were very passionate about law already during your BA studies because you graduated as the first of class. But when and why did you decide to go and study law. You mentioned something about in the army that you also had a course there and that's how you got interested.
0: Um, I was uh, in the intelligence corps and I had to sign for additional two years in in the service but the deal was that we were allowed to attend university classes and I uh, enrolled in a... I didn't know what I want to Study so I enrolled in Tel aviv university in a well, there was then a general degree in social science and i studied a, a introduction to economics and political science and sociology and there was also an elective course on introduction to law and i didn't know about you know i don't have i'm not i don't come from a family of jurists and uh, i didn't have any connection with the uh, world of law, but this course opened really a window and I liked it so much that uh, when I finished the army and uh, registered for university, I applied for law studies at the Hebrew University. So it's kind of a mistake of history that I'm in law. (laughs)
1: That's how it came to be. I'm not sure if it's a mistake, but maybe it was faith. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Maybe it was faith, depends if you believe. <laughs> you know, when I studied law and I also did uh, side by side, uh, there was no uh, formal um, avenue for a joint degree then, but I did also uh, economics side by side to law. But I really, really loved uh, um, law studies. And uh, then I decided that I want to continue uh, in, in the academic direction
1: instead of theater, which you also said you did a little bit during the being.
0: Uh, this is a very interesting story because um, I went um, to an um, acting school when I was under my third year uh, in law school. And I was admitted to Nissan Nativ. It's a very good acting school that just op- opened the branch in Jerusalem in the Jerusalem Theater. And one of the advantages was that every time that we came to our classes we could stay and see a show uh, from backstage at the Jerusalem theater and there was a Jerusalem festival and f- fantastic uh, productions so this was really nice and then i after a year i started my stage my uh, internship and then i had to decide you know i had to do full time internship and then i uh, <laughs> Then I quitted the acting career. I thought maybe for a while, but the while is uh, already 40 years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe to be picked up again soon, who knows?
0: (laughs) Maybe, yeah.
1: With the workshop that you still have. Okay, so you already mentioned you started doing your internship and I know that after your BA you have worked in your field um, and then you went straight into a PhD at Oxford. So what made you quit your job and pursue a doctoral degree instead
0: no I didn't quit uh, my job you know every law student in order to get uh, uh, qualified for the bar has to do internship um, okay. it was one and a half years at my time and I did the one and a half years as you mentioned uh, half of it with uh, um, uh, Justice Barak at the Supreme Court and half of it with uh, Dorit Benish, who became later the Chief Justice, but she was then at the, the Deputy um, Prosecutor General of Israel. So it was, you know, half my internship was with the courts and half with the prosecution of the Attorney General Office, which was very nice. And uh, following the internship and the bar exams, uh, I decided to pursue my academic career and and went to Oxford to do a PhD. This is also an interesting story, but I'll tell you only if you ask.
1: (laughs) I am interested. Please do tell me.
0: Uh, You know, I um, became very interested in the law and economics approach. It was in Israel... The beginning of uh, law and economics, already a little bit more veteran approach in the U.S. And the natural place for me to do my Ph.D. in law and economics was uh, Chicago. Okay. And Chicago was is still one of the very, very important centers of law and economics. And um, I applied and got admitted and my personal life interfered because my beloved partner Fania Uh, a year before that went to Oxford to do her her, uh, doctorate in history and I was faced with a very very tough dilemma follow Mm. the follow the science or follow the love and then we had the deal Fania and I that I come for one year to Oxford and then we both go to Chicago and I pursue my doctorate in Chicago but I've came to Oxford, fell in love with the place. It's a very, very unique and different university uh, from all other universities. And uh, I was involved in many things and started my research and uh, was rowing for the MCR um, rowing team. And uh, MCR is wow. the middle common room, is, you know, the uh, graduate students. And I had a lot of friends from all over the world. And I didn't want to leave at the end of the year. So I stayed in Oxford and completed my doctorate there. It was the first law and economics dissertation in Oxford. Uh, Nobody could really supervise me. That was a very interesting situation Hmm. because there was no law and economics uh, specialist. So I had two supervisors, one uh, from the law faculty one an economist and most of the time i had to uh, mediate between explain to one what the others is saying so this is a very interesting intersection of personal scientific um, and uh, other circumstances (laughs)
1: So you actually really enjoyed doing the PhD, even though it was abroad, but you mentioned you weren't alone because your partner was also already in Oxford. Um, But were there any things that were difficult at the time for you to be abroad, to study something new? You mentioned that there was not really anyone who could actually supervise you. Were those difficult things to face to complete, to be able to complete the PhD?
0: Um... No, I don't think so. Um, in a sense, you know, I had more freedom to do what I think I should do research-wise. I got very good feedbacks uh, from both supervisors from very different perspectives. Um, and it's really an individual thing. You know, some uh, PhD students need a very, very close Contact and advice, and I felt freedom to do what whatever I want to do. I had you know, once in a few weeks a meeting with either a supervisor or both, um, and they read and gave me feedback. It was a very old English supervision method that for me was very very good, but certainly it not it's not an ideal for everyone.
1: Right and. Were you able to get through financially all right? Uh, did you get a scholarship, for example, to do the PhD?
0: Mm-hmm. I got a scholarship, a very, very nice scholarship. The same scholarship that my wife received the year before. Okay. It was uh, the Rothschild Fellowship. Um, and it's a very it's an interesting venture because, um, as you know, Oxford has a very famous Rhodes scholarship. Uh, Cecil Rhodes uh, established there is also a Rhodes house for the Rhodes scholars in Oxford and at the time the Rhodes scholarship was open only to um, certain countries uh, most of them former uh, colonies of Britain but Israel was not among them and that was the background for the establishment of this Rothschild a scholarship which was the equivalent of Rhodes scholarship and I was very very fortunate to win it which gave a very very good scholarship for the for three years of uh, my doctoral studies and there are two interesting stories about this scholarship one is that it was so generous that all my uh, Oxford friends from all over the world thought that I'm an agent of the Mossad <laughs> being financed by the Mossad in my studies. Right. But the other interesting story is that you know the Rothschild Fellowship was really structured upon the Rhodes ideas or the principles. But according to the Rhodes Scholarship rules, you are not allowed to get married during your scholarship. Oh. Not allowed to have relations during your scholarship and if you get married or uh, the scholarship is being uh, stripped this these were the rules then I'm sure that uh, since they were changed
1: I do hope so <laughs> the
0: Rothschild you know the Jewish version of the Rhodes scholarships, said you know if you get married you get additional my son (laughs) to support the family and since fania was also a recipient of this scholarship and i when we eventually got married in oxford um we were entitled to two supplements and we thought <laughs> that it will not be uh, proper and we gave up one.
1: So Oxford um, has a special place in your heart as it is a beautiful campus. You got your both of your degrees there and you also got married there
0: yeah oxford has we uh, had very very good memories of oxford it's really a ma- magic magic period and you know many of our friends until this very day were from these days in oxford what is so nice about oxford you know that the college structure is such that you, your company or your friends come from very it's not a faculty Uh, or discipline uh, distinction, but colleges and every college you have about, you know, 50 postgraduate students. They have their own club and uh, wild parties. One of the advantages (laughs) of Oxford at the time was that libraries were closed down at seven in the evening.
1: (laughs) Oh.
0: (laughs) Unlike Chicago, in which the libraries open 24 hours a day, And at seven in the evening, everybody goes to have dinner in college in this big hall, you know, you see from the movies and you have to wear a gown and, you know, social life uh, as a student in Oxford, uh, especially for, for postgraduate when you come, you know, 18 years old uh, it's a bit tough but when you come as a postgraduate student and it's really a very very international surrounding the social life during these five fantastic years Mm -hmm. were very very hectic and uh, rewarding and I remember that uh, you know one summer, we had a visit of a professor of mine from the Hebrew University, an economist, a quite famous economist, Ariel Rubinstein. And we had a, a little picnic on the grass. And he said, drag as much as possible your time as PhD. <laughs> this is the most beautiful period of your life. And once, you know, you get a job and you have to start teaching and you have to start publishing and get into this um, academic, uh, um, quite crazy, competitive world, you will long to the times when you're when you were a free PhD student, and and this was a very good advice.
1: Okay, well, fair enough. It still got you to where you wanted to be eventually. Um, And having said so much about what the PhD was like for you, I wanted to ask you, because now you're also, you have supervised quite a few PhD students yourself. What do you think the biggest differences are with having done a PhD then and doing a PhD now?
0: Oh, um, technology. When I was doing my PhD, the computer was a new phenomenon. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was the beginning of email. It was not called email. It was something developed by the American uh, army. Uh, I forgot how it was called, but a little bit of communication over the computer, Um, There was one room at the law library, um, the Bodleian Law Library in Oxford, locked most of the time, which had a computer with connection to outside world. And um, there was a new system in the US called, um, um, of digging uh, decisions of American courts Um, And Oxford University got access to this database, but you had to schedule a time with a tutor who was one of the professors in order to use this computer. And so basically, you know, most research was conducted in the library, in archives. Um and today you know, technology makes um research a very, very different enterprise. Um and this makes a lot of difference.
1: I can only imagine uh and it links back to what you said earlier that uh we might be on a different um planet a little bit regarding this uh technology difference.
0: Also writing, you know, I wrote already on the computer. Uh, We had uh, (laughs) first uh, uh, a computer of a British company that afterwards uh, uh, went bust. And it had totally different system and different word processing software than what we used to today. You know, there was then competition. Uh, But um, even writing... Well, the uh, the doctorate was a very different exercise. Everything that you wrote, you couldn't send it, you had to print it. And if there was a mistake, right. you reprinted it. And uh, since I did law and economics uh, uh, dissertation, I had a lot of graphs and then there were no uh, software to put up graphs, so I had to insert them Manually, it was a very, very different exercise, both researching and writing.
1: Okay, and when you get someone um, who comes over to you and asks if you would supervise him or her as a PhD student, what would you ask them to consider before starting?
0: I would ask them to consider whether they are really, really interested in doing a PhD. Because most of okay. most of the people who come and think, you know, um, I have to have this nice title, and let's do a PhD. Don't know what do they get into? Because before PhD, you know, um, bachelor, master degree, you learn courses, you are instructed to read materials, you think about questions that are uh, that you are being asked. It's a very, very different exercise to conduct a research, to think about a research question, methodology, how you do it. You are on your own, basically. And it doesn't fit everyone. It doesn't fit even those who were excellent in their uh, bachelor and master studies. It's a very different skill. Uh, A skill or a passive skill of digesting and analyzing and criticizing materials that you are being told to read and an exercise of thinking about a new question, designing a research and writing about it. And a PhD journey is also different in the sense that it's a lonely journey, unlike, you know, peer group in class Uh, the phd student knows that her uh, knowledge of the topic that she's writing about uh, is unique and she at the end of the process should know the topic that she was writing about better than her supervisors and sometimes it's you know there are setbacks and uh, it's a long and torturous process. It doesn't fit everyone and it doesn't fit those who just want to have a nice title or a additional title. And it really, you know, PhD is a very nice thing and uh, original thinking and the original contribution, but uh, it really fits those who are interested to go to academic career and and dedicate their their life to research and um, knowledge and innovation and teaching, and not uh, for others. So, you know, people don't know what to expect when they come uh, to do PhD. And one of the first things that I ask those who come to me is why do you want to do a PhD? And are you aware of all uh, The process and and the setbacks and uh, uh, the loneliness of uh, doing a research with yourself. And some people afterwards withdraw. So you need really a drive. And you know, again, it's different in your generation when things you you want a rapid reward. You know, PhD, mm-hmm. PhD in a way is something that belongs to an old world, where the pace of change and uh, the pace of time was slower.
1: I did notice that the
0: the, the alternative, the cost, the alternative cost. If you you know, if you if you are sinking into a three or four or five years project of PhD or Friends can already, um, you know, form a company and make an exit and uh, and develop a startup. And at the end of the five years, you think that uh, you know, wow, my friends are so so ahead of me. I just finished my PhD. Um, So, in a sense. the academic world is finding, I think, more challenging circumstances than in the past.
1: Right. Um, I recognize a lot from what you're saying. One of the first things my supervisor uh, asked me is also why do you want to do a PhD? Do you want to go into academia? Um, And at the time I wasn't sure what the answer was that he also wanted to hear. (laughs) And I also had to think about it very carefully myself um, for what I was getting into. Being a first-generation PhD student, I didn't really know what I was getting into. But what I also wanted to ask you is um, if there's anything that the system or a university can uh, do to help people who are thinking about doing a PhD to get them more information, to make them realize more what those expectations are, um, and also uh, to get them through. So maybe their experience would be less lonely. They would be able to connect with more peers or things like that. Have you thought about anything that could change?
0: I I think that uh, universities, you know, it differs from university to university, from uh, department to department, try to give a very supportive environment uh, we have in Haifa a PhD seminar so all the PhD students know each other and they present their work and get feedback um, and we have various events that are attempting to um, to a little, little bit erase the loneliness but still you know in essence you are writing your topic other people writing their topic So the essence of the exercise is a very lonely exercise. You know, it might be different in sciences, in uh, experimental sciences where you are part of a lab and there is a collective project. Uh, But in our fields, social sciences, humanities, law, um, it it is um, an individual exercise and... um, We try to complement it with various aspects of uh, collective support, uh, but it doesn't change the essence of uh, the spirit. But, you know, I don't want to discourage people from um, (laughs) thinking about PhD. As I said before, you know, it can be the most beautiful time of your life, especially if you are financially supported. Um, It's the most free period of your life freedom you know nobody tells you to do this and that you do whatever you think you ought to do Uh, it's even different you know students uh, BA or MA students also have a great period usually you know student uh, time in campus but uh, their schedule is is, uh, decided and they have to study for so and so weeks and read these materials and get in, and and uh, sit uh exams and so forth and so on um basically, when you're a ph student, you can you know design your work leisure, uh, fun and other activities as you want um it's a really period of freedom, but total freedom does not suit everyone you know some people need a more strict framework some people need to be told what to do now and what to do afterwards Uh, so you have to have a special character to go to this um, journey
1: it depends on your character a little bit and, and if this really fits you as a person yeah right then Having talked about the PhD, I actually wanted to ask you what happened after the PhD. Um, I have talked earlier when I introduced you about all the things you've published, the research and the teaching you've done, different universities you've visited. But how did that come about? What happened as soon as you got the title and you finished the dissertation?
0: Uh, well, so <laughs> we're talking about the beautiful time of being a PhD student, (laughs) but uh, I want to encourage people to go to the academia. Also the academic life Mm -hmm. are beautiful. The academic life are beautiful because again, relative to others, you have um, quite a broad degree of freedom to do, you know, to combine things. You teach, you do research, You uh, organize uh, workshops and conferences, and and it's many components. Every person, every academic can decide how much to do of which. It's not a boring and routine uh, work. You are the master of, relative master of your own time. Some people like to work night hours some people like to work in early morning Uh, a lot of used to be a lot of travel meeting people and so I'm very much happy that I'm in the academic world and I'm not in politics or government or a big company but again it doesn't fit everyone so what happens after my you know after you complete your PhD today's academic markets are more competitive it's difficult to get a job and my time it was I think a little bit easier it was also competitive but in my specific case uh, you know I came from Jerusalem I was born in Jerusalem I was raised in Jerusalem I was a very until now I'm very Jerusalemite and it was almost natural that I go back to the Hebrew University. And uh, I was very lucky. We were very lucky to get an offer from the Hebrew University uh, to go back. But then uh, I was approached by uh, the founding dean of the Haifa Law Faculty, Haifa law faculty was very new, was just uh, inaugurated. And Professor Itzhak Zamir, who was the first dean, told told me, come to us. We are building a new thing, a very different concept of legal education. You will have here, you know, much more freedom to craft how legal education uh, in your eyes uh, should be. and and Haifa was we didn't know Haifa at all we didn't know the (laughs) university we didn't know the city we came first to visit Haifa and it felt to us like an abroad a a different place but we really got love we, we fell in love with Haifa and the idea of a new university a new faculty was very appealing and And we found ourselves uh, in Haifa. But basically, you know, today, uh, and this is something that, um, again, is different today than when uh, I completed my PhD. Uh, Today, uh, in order to get a job, an academic job, you have to have already several publications, good publications. And the way... To smoothen the transit from a PhD stage to an academic job is a postdoctorate, a year or two of postdoctorate, okay. um, in which you have time uh, to do research, to publish, to prepare your materials for job application. And this is a very, very important. Change or addition to the academic career path. Um, and so the recommendation is for those who complete their PhD to look for a very good place for a postdoc. Uh, you know, the, the Minerva Center.
1: I was going to say the same. <laughs>
0: have, uh, several postdocs every year. And it's also a kind of a place for a community, academic community. Again, the uh, component of individual and collective projects are interesting and people can experience also um, preparing workshops and doing academic activity, various types of academic activities that were not engaged in uh, before. Um, so a good place for a postdoc is, uh, is a very, very important phase of an academic career. And I'm very happy to say that, you know, uh, three or four of our postdocs got uh, jobs at universities. And this is also a rewarding thing for the supervisor of the postdoctoral and doctoral students.
1: It is. That sounds like good advice. Thanks for that. Um, Usually, my last question um, is where I ask the guests what they plan on doing with their PhDs because they're usually early career researchers, but I still want to ask you this most important question of the podcast. What are you going to do with that? And maybe you can relate it to having an academic career. What is now next for you?
0: (laughs) Next for me is a very nice uh, retirement. (laughs) Uh, Very nice. In which I can teach less and publish less and combine other things um, but this is not what you mean Um, what what to do with your uh, academic career this is the question right so um, as I said before academic career is very very varied and uh, it's a good advice to taste from all its offerings okay to of course publish in good places but uh, also engage with uh, various projects An academic voice is an important voice in the public sphere so don't be only um, you know stranded in your uh, room writing but also have a social and public impact and uh, if I look on my academic career I think this combination of various things was many years that I dedicated to academia it, its advantage or um, edge over other occupations and other uh, things that I might have been doing in a different life.
1: Okay that was a good answer to a question that is a bit different in your case than I usually ask my guests. Well, to wrap up, I have three more short questions to make a full circle. And the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field?
0: Oh, the most important contribution. Well, I'm a a supermarket academic. I don't go into depths in any of the areas that I deal with. I like to approach things from a broad theoretical perspective and uh, then open the door and others uh, can, can get in and do a more thorough research. And I think that in this sense, the theory of delegation of powers is my... I regard it as my important contribution because it gave a framework for many other institutional and legal situations. So the theory of why politicians are interested to delegate powers, uh, which is counterintuitive in a sense, uh, which emerged from my dissertation, which I wrote about the independence of the judiciary from a law and economics perspective. I think this is my major contribution to the theory and maybe my major contribution to Israeli legal history is an article that I wrote jointly with my uh, wife on the German sources of the Israeli law. And this is a very interesting story that was not told until we wrote this article some 15 years ago um because the Israeli um, there was a taboo on everything German in Israel and nobody talked about the fact that half of the Supreme Court justices either came from Germany in the formative years, three formative generations of Israel, actually actually, half of the life of Israel so far uh, half of the Supreme Court were, judges were either trained or were born in Germany. And they brought with them a very interesting heritage, judicial and cultural heritage that was not discussed until then, until we wrote this article. So this is another thing that I think that left a mark on my academic career. <laughs> it's very funny because my son just started law school this year.
1: Okay. Nice.
0: one of the items in the reading list on uh, the heritage of the Israeli legal system or uh, is this article <laughs> so this this oh. this is most rewarding <laughs> right more rewarding than an article being accepted to a journal a star
1: <laughs> very nice. do you think he read it?
0: Um, I suspect that he read it yeah
1: <laughs> okay let's keep it to that. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished?
0: Who? Many people. I really cannot uh, uh, name one person. I think that um, many of my generation um, had much bigger bigger academic mark than I did, uh, with various pioneering articles or books or uh, establishing new fields. So it's difficult to, to mention one. You know, if you want a historical hero, historical okay. academic hero, I would go for Jeremy Bentham, uh, which, uh, who I uh, teach in various courses. Jeremy Bentham, 18th century uh, Englishman, who actually is the founder of utilitarianism as a moral theory, but he did much more. He did uh, very, very important academic research as well as uh, amazing projects like, for example, establishing uh, University College London, which was the first secular university in Britain, which enabled people Mm -hmm. to come to study uh, the university uh, that, that they couldn't do before, for example, Jews. Um, And he is my academic hero, maybe.
1: (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. (laughs) How do you relax after a hard day of work?
0: How do I relax after a hard day of work? We have a very, very nice um, garden in Zichron. So I try to do a little bit of work in the garden. Um, I you know occasionally like to read a good book Uh not occasionally but you know after a, a good work day i like to read a little bit sometimes watch um, a movie or a series um, and meet friends
1: that sounds good all right well thank you ellie for taking the time to join us today and for the insight that you've given us into your academic career and how to go about it, really, for us. Of course, I also want to thank our audience for listening and I'd like to remind you that you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and our website. We'd love to hear what you think, so leave a comment and start a discussion with us.
0: It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I wish all the listeners uh, a great... (laughs) career a great future whether academic or not uh, be always content with what you decide and uh, what you want to pursue and of course there are uh, always uh, points of u-turn or exit if you want to try a different track
1: thanks for that I also wanted to thank you personally for introducing me to the Minerva Center because I actually know you um, through the Haifa Center for German and European Studies where I'm doing my PhD. Um, and it's been very helpful for me to join the Young researchers' Forum at the Minerva Center with other PhDs and postdocs where we talk about our research and read each other's work and give each other some feedback. It's been uh, really helpful and really nice and, and less lonely even though now we're only doing it on Zoom and not in person anymore.
0: We will come back, partially at least, to our (laughs) physical gathering Hopefully
1: soon